Welcome to the Where Two or Three podcast, Christian thinkers finding their place at the table of communication scholarship. Before we begin, the views and discussions of this podcast do not necessarily reflect agreement with the views of Martin Luther College. Thank you, John. By the way, I was thinking about our disclaimer. This is walking up. Remember that day we had our team of lawyers working on that disclaimer? Oh, yeah. To get it just right. Um, no, actually, when I offered the idea of a podcast to to uh, higher-ups at Martin Luther College, I kind of offered that we would do something like that. Yeah. Um, what would you do, John, if someone wrote to us and just didn't like what we were talking about and said our theology was bad and... Well, that'd be Not exciting. You'd give us a whole podcast it of material would. to talk it about. Would. It would. I guess right. <clears throat> I don't think either of us would be sticking to our guns or yeah. belligerent. We have no intention of saying anything that wouldn't be kosher with Martin Luther no. College or, no. with, or with our church body. And if it did happen, I think we would just say, sorry, we'll try to say things more clearly or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. So, but, uh, I mean, I'm always open. I hope, I hope I'm always open to the possibility that I'm wrong about something that I'm saying. So just right. give me another opportunity to live by that and yeah. and kind of examine, you know, maybe where another point of view could be could be happening. So right. yeah, we welcome all of the hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I would I would think that most of the people that would disagree with us would come from outside that it would be great, great to have MLC people thing, listening. But, I think yeah. I would take that as <laughs> take that as a win. <laughs> so <laughs> Absolutely. But uh, yeah, again, I think we said before, we're giving ourselves permission to sometimes speculate and, yeah. and, and not parse every word. So anyway, so we have our traditional prayer, and let me offer that. The eyes of all wait upon thee, O Lord, and thou givest them their food at the proper time. Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. Amen. Amen. So... Uh, Devotional thought? Should I go right into yeah, that? Yeah, let's just go, let's just jump right in, and I think that'll carry us into the the, okay. the topic as well. Sure, sure. So I am, I have my Bible open to Isaiah 40. Uh, anybody that has trained in our pastoral training system will remember the beautiful words, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, first words of Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people. Um, so the background, or the context, I should say, is People living in the devastation of Babylon having completely destroyed Jerusalem, wiped God's worship center off the face of the earth, pulled down the walls of the city and so on, and people traipse off to a place that isn't their home. And what they were to do is to remember that they had uh, a scripture uh, at the time over 100 years old that Isaiah had written for them for the day he saw that when, when he wrote it, no one else saw and so when it happens, when life completely falls apart, then there is Isaiah book 2, which is chapter 40 to 66, and it opens up saying, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then it goes into the prophecy of John the Baptist, the voice calling in the wilderness and so on. But I'm focusing now really on just a phrase, which is a Hebrew idiom. <clears throat> Excuse me. So where the English says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, the Hebrew says, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. And uh, you see this phrase in other places too, in the 
book of Ruth, there's that big moment where Ruth falls to her knees um, at a little bit of kindness from Boaz. And her expression is, well, you have spoken to my heart. And again, English translations do different things to try to communicate the power of the moment. And so this is sort of what our, what our episode is about. It's about words. It's about what they are. Um, and especially it's going to be, as the meat of our, of our program, when words become extraordinarily powerful. So what are those qualities? What are the things that, that make those moments possible? I always say on the sea of all the words people say, that whole ocean of just words, what makes certain words rise to the top and carry you to your grave, so, or you take them to your grave sometimes. So that's our topic, and that's Isaiah 40. And uh, maybe one more comment, unless you want to jump in, John. Am I, being uh, I don't have anything clear enough? right yet, but... Okay. Yeah. So maybe what's in order is just to talk about the... Hebrew concept of heart being somewhat different than what our English ears hear. The Hebrew word is lave. And so English ears hear something emotional. Um, the Hebrew concept of heart is just broader than that. It would include emotion, but it wouldn't ex exclude intellect or, or will or desire, that whole range of things. So we would say the Hebrew heart or idea of heart is the whole inwardness of a person, that the whole that whole uh, deepest place in a person. And it often gets associated with what a person needs the most, what, what, are, what the heart is pinned on. What, what is that thing you can't live without? What is that thing that is uh, how you live, um, how you make sense out of life, how you get by? What is that one thing? So Psalm 73, for, for example, Whom have I in heaven but you, the writer says. Earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. God is the strength of my heart. So we're talking about words that speak to that sort of deepest existential, is that okay to put it that way, existential space? We'll see, we'll see if anyone writes us a letter for that one. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's not a safe word, I'm, I'm sure. But so we're talking about words that get, words that get through. Words that get through and address something a person maybe has been hiding inside, whether it's fear or shame or guilt. And um, I can't think of many examples of, as I say, words taking on that extraordinary power that don't have that quality of words addressing something that a person carries and hides inside. And I think a lot of the times, at least what, what comes to mind for me, is that those words are piercing in that they bring something to the surface, which was maybe not not there before or was trying to be forgotten or was unintentionally forgotten. Mm -hmm. But there's something latent that is uh, awoken in the person that feels that powerful moment, mm -hmm. whether it's the speaker or the, the listener hearer. Yeah, I agree. And I hope we get into examples, your favorite ones, my favorite ones. But uh, to back off a little bit... Um, so our, our, our podcast is about how Christians have things to say in the realm of communication, that we have a contribution to make in this world of scholarship. And so I don't know if I've ever really said a lot to you about this, John, but uh, one of my main inspirations, as I think that way, is uh, St. Augustine. And I actually, so this goes back to, boy, I should have re reviewed his dates. Do you know the dates of St. Augustine? Uh, I can must look be them the fourth, up quick. must be the fourth century, I assume. Uh, Augustine probably written the oldest book that I would say is on my kind of top 10 list of favorites. His book Confessions is just mm -hmm. a masterpiece. We think a book written 
nothing like any book that had been available to him. There's, so there's, he's not imitating any kind of literature that we know that he had at hand. It's so really a remarkable creation, a theology that, a Christian theology that sings with its eloquence in really unique ways. The transparency of the writer and the pathos just were really unprecedented, it seems. Uh, I remember somebody, when Scala used the phrase with Augustine um, about rhetoric, that he had a productive ambivalence with rhetoric, which I like that. That meant he was suspicious of rhetoric. He was suspicious of sort of aiming for eloquence, and yet by his very suspiciousness, <laughs> he brought eloquence into the church. Mm -hmm. He brought uh, a love for the beauty of words really into Christendom in many ways by his own writing. So I take that view towards some things like apologetics. I, I yeah. like to follow that um, productive ambivalence, being not so sure about it in, in a way that I hope. Yeah, like a healthy skepticism. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. That, that exactly. yields good results. Exactly. I think it's saying that he was uh, 354 AD to oh, okay. 430 AD. Okay, so. I was right for once. So... That's a win. <laughs> so anyway, I've got a book of St. Augustine in front of me. It's called On Christian Doctrine, usually referred to by its Latin title, but uh, I don't remember it, so we'll just do it in English. <laughs> and this is my example of a Christian thinker centuries ago thinking about communication and doing it in a completely theological way. He just doesn't see the two as separate. So this is an eight-line quote, so if you'll bear with me. And I'll let you react to it. <clears throat> Here's what Augustine said. In what way did he, that is Jesus, come but this? The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Just as when we speak, in order that what we leave in our minds may enter through the ear into the mind of the hearer, the word which we have in our hearts becomes an outward sound and is called speech. And yet our thought does not lose itself in the sound, but remains complete in itself and takes the form of speech without being modified in its own nature by the change. So the divine word, though suffering no change of nature, yet became flesh that he might dwell among us. So, wow, I mean... Some heavy stuff there. <laughs> it, yeah, it's... I'm not sure... I'm enough of a theologian to, to sort of hang my hat on... That's okay, to hang my hat on the analogy... Whether it's perfect, I, you know, analogies fail, but mm -hmm. I think, can you do any better than the idea of a thought in the mind of the Father not dim, not being diminished as it becomes the Word, becomes the Son, not yeah. losing itself? And he's trying to say, you know, the essential yeah. godness of Jesus is not lost as it as he takes on our own flesh. But And that's John 1, right? That's, exactly, John, yeah. John 1, yeah. And so, again, the, the larger point I'm making is just here's a Christian thinking well, let's go ahead and call him our the first semiotician. Yeah, the first one dealing with what words are. Yeah, in, in the way that he did. So I just think that's fascinating. Stuff. Yeah, I mean, at that time, who was who was doing anything remotely close to that? Exactly. This is the same guy that did the the Order of Loves, right? That's yeah, Saint Augustine. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. But yeah, what that what that kind of reminds me of is um, how the language that we know influences the way that we perceive things. And mm -hmm. so to apply that to Christ being the embodiment of, of God's word is very interesting to kind of see the parallels. Mm -hmm. I think, um, I think we may have talked about that 
specific thing before. It's the what movie is it? Arrival, where they the way that the language that they know kind of changes, determines, like deterministic linguistics versus just being influenced by. And I think we kind of agreed that the language that you know and the language that you speak does influence the way that you see the world. And we see mm-hmm. this across cultures. We see this uh, many places. But then to make that application also to this instance is very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good. So <clears throat> anything to say, John, about semiosis before we transition back toward our topic yeah, of encouragement? It's a, it's a very interesting field of study. I didn't really dive too much into that in my, in my courses, at mm. least. I mean, we touched on it and it's sort of like a, it's sort of like an umbrella f- part of, of study from, from what mm-hmm. I remember. Mm-hmm. It was more like a, an overarching thing that wasn't, yeah. there isn't one champion of the, other than Augustine, as we've just determined, mm-hmm. but, um, there's been many people who, you know, add to our understanding of that, but it's, it's kind of ethereal, sort of. And I, I study. do, I yeah. do keep it rather simple. Um, what I, I find some very useful applications in just thinking about what words are. Um, <clears throat> so, think about a word, a sign like the word "father." Have we talked about that before? I think we might may have. I remember this came up in class, but I think it's relevant okay. enough to to speak about again. So sure. So we're simply talking about three things that come together with a given symbol, like mm-hmm. father. So. First of all, with father, we're supposed to notice that the word is arbitrary. You can't really reason from the look or sound of the word to what it's referring to. So it's actually a symbol. Um, so we do communicate in code. And you and I share the same speech code, and so we're able to use words in a meaningful way. Um, but it is a code. So with that symbol, father, there are two other things interse- intersecting. And this is not rocket science. One of them is the the referent. So that's the thing outside you and me that it's referring to. Um, and in this case, we have different fathers, so we have different reference potentially showing up in our minds mm-hmm. as we use the word. And the third thing is uh, the, call it the meaning or call it the connotation or the baggage. So all the things that the word evokes in imagination based on, well, a man named Saunders Pierce called it the field of experience. So we've had different experiences that determine with a given code coded symbol, what that referent actually is and what the meaning is. So an example of the Statue of Liberty, would we'd have the same referent, but the meaning could be could be profoundly different, that, that set of associations and so on. Yeah. And so it's sort of an application I think people have thought about before, just kind of maybe put some bones on it, that that when I use words, I want to I want to have a sort of habit of explaining what I mean. You know, like yeah. if the word father is for me just about the warmest word in the, la- in the language, the associations are all positive and all good and they just have an incredible depth to them. That if I'm talking to someone for whom father does not have those same associations, then do I just ignore that or, or what do I do about that? Let's say I'm talking to a classroom of children and let's say half the kids in the room, I can't count on the fact that father has that same set of associations. So. Um, we would simply say, one scholar called it a more or less, uh, he called it a certain kind of talk. A certain kind of talk means a more or less constantly describing words and what we mean by them. 
And so, boys and girls, when I say father, I mean this, this, and this, right? I mean someone who is there and who is who's committed to your good and who is unchanging in his affection for you and so on. And so I just, I define my symbols so that I can have a confidence that from now on when I use the word, we're using it the same way. And it's a very simple thing, but I think, I think it does kind of define the clear communicator. You know, when you think about our church body as a speech community, I've often thought that there aren't many important words that we're really using the same way as yeah. the surrounding community. You know, is, is, can you think of any? I can't. Like what love means yeah, or what uh, faith means or what hope means. I mean, just go down the line and then, and then you come to a set of words that we just don't even share, like sanctification. You know? yeah. uh, I think of the pastor who throws out Cain and Abel for his illustrations or, or Galilee or the apostle, you know, and... You would just think that communication comes to a screeching halt anytime I'm using a word that doesn't happen to be in your code yeah. or a word that has a, an entirely different referent or an entirely different meaning. And so it doesn't have to be obvious that I'm doing this. It can be a very natural thing to say, Cain and Abel, you know, those, those first brothers, sons of Adam and Eve who, I mean, there was a murder in that first family, just enough to be sure I'm not losing my audience kind of yeah yeah i like that because it well what it does is it implies that you're being attentive to the audience that you have Mm -hmm. and when you anticipate that the audience may have a different understanding of the code that you intend on using the symbols you intend on using that you accommodate to them exactly uh right away and so yeah it's like not um not forgoing the name Father, yeah. God's preferred name for Himself, the yeah. first brother of the Trinity. Not just saying, "Oh, I guess I can't use this word," but to just to simply have that certain kind of talk, I think, mm-hmm. is a useful thing. Um, happens yeah. to be my favorite uh, definition of culture too. I think of culture this as a well, Clifford Gertz called it the semiotic web. Yeah. So this is semiosis, and it's saying culture is that a culture is a vastly complicated, staggeringly rich web of all the symbols of a given group, people grouping. So all their stories, all their artifacts, all their words, all their nonverbals, just all of it rolled into one web. And I like that because it says, not that the web is impenetrable, but there's a certain humility of just how much time we're going to need to spend in a certain place talking about what things mean or listening to what things mean before I can begin to feel like I've put my exactly head yeah. inside, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I think that's, I didn't, again, I didn't study this too much semiotics itself, but it was more of a, when we, we understand, <laughs> maybe it's ironic that we, the semiotics was like, we, we know what that is, right? And then we define it and then we, we would go on in, in class. But um, mm-hmm. uh, just the understanding of what words mean and how they're interpreted by others. And it was mm-hmm. very general, but. It's, it's good to look at because that's what it does is it forces you to be empathetic to the people around you right. and to be aware right. of the people around you and what right. they might be bringing to the table. Exactly. So and, you brought up, again, linguistic relativity. You know, are we confined by our language to how we can think of reality? And I think this, this view lets us both respect what a big deal culture is. We're not minimizing that difference, but we're also not pessimistic 
as if the Chinese mind and the American mind can never meet. No, it's going to mm-hmm. be some work as we yeah. talk about what things mean and, and uh, not saying it's easy. We're just not giving up. We're yeah. not saying that, and we're not going to for a second buy the notion that the gospel itself can't penetrate. Yeah. I mean, and that's a great way to look at the gospel too, as like a culture. And then you can compare that to the, the whatever culture mm-hmm. you're living in mm-hmm. and then see what, Maybe bridges need to be crossed and and go from there. Is then that's the that was the interesting thing about the linguish linguistic relativity mm-hmm. in in that context for me. So, right. and it comes right down to to describing the church as a culture. Then it does come right down to the words themselves mm-hmm. and what they mean, and not leaving to chance that someone. Yeah. <laughs> I just say grace. I say faith. I say hope. I say love, and not leaving to chance. You know. When I say love, what I mean is yeah. a commitment to another human being. That's what I mean. And now we can have confidence about how we're using that word if I... Grace especially. I mean, in, in my work, grace means you push lunch back a couple minutes. <laughs> so it's a very different... Not the same thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're right. You really come to almost opposite meanings, like hope. I mean, Christian hope and secular hope both are forward-looking. That's what they have in common, but... After that, there's nothing in common. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I hope it rains means, eh, it might, might not. Let's, you know, let's make a little wish right now versus yeah. something solid and and um, inevitable yeah. as the Christian hope. You know, very, very different mm-hmm. concept. And so even even talking about that, I, in fact, I have we talked about the theory of linguistic hospitality? Has that come up? Oh, man. I don't remember what we've talked so about. So I don't listen to these too often. <laughs> no, but, I never do. Uh, you know what? Let's talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get this will get, if us, it's not, this if will it's get us back to heart because <clears throat> yeah. uh, it's, a person can feel about their own language like it's so rich and it just can say stuff other languages can't say. So you'll hear that about German. The German is just the perfect language for Lutheran theology because it can say things other languages can't say. Uh, other languages can't bear the freight of what German can bear, you know, and... and, <laughs> and uh, one scholar says, okay, <laughs> that can be true in, in certain ways for sure. For sure it can be true. But, he, but he's saying instead of thinking of things lost in translation, he has a phrase, things gained in translation. That just means that when you bring two language, languages together, like Hebrew heart and English heart, bring those together, that it brings to mind the things you, you notice and think about what you know, what a heart is. And you wouldn't think about that if you didn't bring the languages together and do the hard work of translation. So he's saying, don't wring your hands over. You're losing so much translating. Say, there's so much that comes to mind that you just wouldn't, it it would be be like a fish in water not noticing the water, right? Yeah, yeah. If you didn't go through the exercise. And I I think that's a cool insight. Yeah, that seems, I wonder what that would be like to look at the original languages that scripture was written in and see what was gained in writing it in Hebrew mm-hmm. or Greek or Aramaic yeah. or wherever. And then what do you gain in going from that to English, for yeah. example? Or that to Latin or right. German or whatever language right. it is. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So um, transitioning then, I guess, to our, what inspired yeah, the I episode guess the, was. Inc- I think encouragement was the word. Yeah. Um, we're staring blankly at yeah, each other. Yeah, we are. <laughs> Where do we start? Yeah, we got lost in the web of semiotics. Yes, and we did. We, um, yes, we did. I, I was trying didn't, to... Didn't come up with an appropriate segue <laughs> for this one. <laughs> well, 
I was just, I was trying to reach in my mind for ways that the Bible writers in the Bible times may have thought differently about what words even are. I know that Hebrew word davar means both word and deed, and there's something going on there where they're not making the same distinction you and I would make. But uh, what I can say for sure is that this notion that words are powerful and we ought to think about what we say is, first of all, it takes me to the Proverbs. I mean, there's just all kinds of things in the Proverbs that say, life and death are in the power of the tongue. You know, yeah. Um, one verse says, "Oh, like apples of gold and settings of silver is the right word at the right time." And the way Proverbs work, you know, with these little ethical sayings, they it circles around again and again and again to to themes. And this is one that you just again and again you come back to it. That that uh, one phrase I remember: "The a, a man finds joy in giving an apt reply. How good is a pleasant word?" And that verse I was says to me, there's joy on both sides of this. Mm-hmm. The man who had the thing to say gets something out of it, walks away richer, just as the one he spoke to. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's like a, a common thing. And then New Testament, too, the Apostle Paul several times talks about, um, let us encourage each other all the more as you see the day approaching. Or he says, this is a reason not to give up meeting together. Yeah. And by the way, we're going to have an episode someday in worship. We've decided, right, John? Yeah. Someday, maybe today. We'll maybe see. today. Who yeah. knows? So it's the reason not to give up on that because we're meant to be together too. The Apostle Paul said, encourage each other. One place he says, consider how to encourage as, as if it isn't the easiest or most automatic thing. You ought to be thinking about what gives words their power, which is the reason for our conversation right now. Absolutely. I like that. Uh, what's the Hebrew word? I'm not. Or the Greek word? The, in the Greek New word? Testament is, yeah. It's parakaleo. Okay. In the Hebrew idiom was speak to the heart. Yeah, yeah. Right? Well, the Hebrew word that means word and deed is very interesting to mm-hmm. me. Um, that there's almost not a distinct separation between those. Right. Implies uh, full integrity. Right. Where like whatever words are said, those are done. Those are committed to. Those are executed. Certainly. And in the background of that, of course, is creation and what God does by his word alone that I think just kind of echoes through the whole Old Testament view of speech yeah. in um, some way. And I'd, most of when, I've, when I think of integrity, it's mostly applied to maybe my day-to-day life. I have, I have a coach, we talk about it a lot, that seems it's like the core of maybe what my coaching is about, but to imply integrity to scripture is something that I haven't done. And it's all like Christ is the integrity of God then because the, he is the deed that brought everything together. So that it's just, that's fascinating to me just right now thinking I have never thought about it like that where the, the, like the word of God being in action as well. Yeah. That was, this will happen. And yeah, absolutely. absolutely yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah, very good. We maybe should come back to what you just said, your, your coaching, yeah. coaching issue. I mean, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, well, a lot of times, I remember that's, uh, we we did talk about, at the it's sort of at the very beginning. It's a very foundational aspect to life when you look at all the things that you say, all of the things that you say, and examine whether you're you have integrity or not. 
And Let me stop you a second, John. Yeah. Um, you were talking about how you've recently come across someone who you're dealing with yeah, as yeah, a I've coach hired, in your own. I've hired a coach okay. as a life business executive type coach. Yeah. And so you're saying the first thing. That's one of the first topics that we really dug into mm-hmm. was integrity. That was the, I think it's the core. Like if you mm-hmm. don't have that, then, you know, what progress can you really make elsewhere? But I'll remember for at least quite a long time that uh, he kind of drew a graph. It was like a, a table. Is yes and no. And you just make check marks in each of these things. So you examine everything that you say and you make a check mark. Did I actually do that? Did I wake up at 6 a.m. every day this week? Did I read the chapter of that book? Did I make it to work on time? Mm-hmm. All of these things. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people go through life putting check marks in kind of both columns equally where they kind of balance it out. And then the, the goal, the new way to go about it is to always put check marks in the yes column. That's the only option you have. You can't put anything in no anymore. Hmm. There's only yes or renegotiate what your word is in light of something that you found along the way. Say like, you wake up at 5.59 right before 6, like you said you would, and you realize that I'm sick and I need to sleep in order to become healthy again. So you renegotiate, but that's in light of new information that you didn't know when you said your word. Hmm. I love that. And the renegotiation is not the like the cop-out or the goal. It's always somewhere that's like a step forward. Right. So... So if you, you can get things, caught up in like, yeah, you can get caught up in thinking about it like, oh, well, I'll just rene- renegotiate that when I don't because I feel like it. Mm-hmm. Right. That's not the that's not what happens. But it's full, yeah. full commitment to everything that you say, even the small, smallest little like, oh, yeah, it's OK. Is it OK? Right. Is, is it really? Because if you don't mean it, then don't say it. Yeah. So that, that's been get- that's been powerful to like. It's not a night and day type change, but it's been something that as I'm examining, constantly examining the things that I'm saying and doing to like notice the new places where I can maintain integrity where I may have not before. Interesting. So if you say you're going to get up at six. Get up at you, six. You say this to yourself and mm-hmm. then you don't. Then you're in a place where you don't really believe yourself as you make these promises to yeah. yourself. You. And every single time you're you're uh, letting your integrity erode, I, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And um, it because it does it it will come out if it's there. If if there's mm-hmm. if there's a lack of integrity, it will it will manifest itself. And so to commit to those things and mm-hmm. and, I'm, I'm and really do that. I'm so sure. that was that was what was really interesting when I heard the that word that word and deed are both acceptable translations. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. very interesting because we don't have that in the English language. Right. I'm sure maybe you're not able bit, to but... avoid the inevitability of still finding out that God's word is the word that is true. And my words are always going to be either negotiable or, or just breakable. Yeah. <laughs> Or what, what's the word I want, you know, just subject to change. Yeah. God is the one who can speak in a whole different way than that. And yet it I, strikes me as a really important p- 
point of personal growth because you're saying, I think what you're saying is you're taking words very seriously. Yeah. And that, that's kind of the point of contact with our topic of encouraging other people. My words, I just can't throw them around. I, mm-hmm. I, I need to try to gain a sense of when Mark Poston says something. Yeah. He doesn't just say it. You can count on it. Yeah. You know, I think that for words to be influential, there's a certain core trust that has to be there. Or if, if this person just flatters or just says convenient things, then yeah, he's going to also lack the power to really, really speak those words that I will carry, you know. Absolutely. So I think the funny part is like the, when we, the day that we were kind of talking about it, reading about it, et cetera, my car broke down. Uh, and so that was one of the examples of something that lacks integrity is like a vehicle that can break down at any time and you have no idea, <laughs> which causes me to like, I mean, I'm rescheduled like two meetings and like had to change my whole weekend. And it was a very, I don't know. That was a, that was a funny thing <laughs> where, I, but, but it's true. Like our, we are sometimes influenced by things that lack integrity that force us to renegotiate things that we maybe were outside of our control, mm-hmm. but you then have an opportunity to maintain integrity by rescheduling the meeting instead of just not showing up. Mm-hmm. You can renegotiate at that point. Interesting. But, but God so, doesn't have to renegotiate is the fun part. Like when you think about it like that, which I haven't, so that'll be fun to kind of read sections of scripture and then and then view it through that lens mm-hmm. will be eye-opening, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, then, that, and then going to like encouragement, like uh, that's sometimes when people feel like they need encouragement, that's when they turn to scripture is very interesting mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So thinking about, about a way to get get uh, back to this concept of the essence of encouragement is words that manage to address the fear people hide inside. So that's going to be... You've heard that in my class, you know, years yeah. ago. So the essence of encouragement, when words manage to address the fear that somebody's hiding inside, and fear is kind of a catch-all. So it can be shame, inadequacy, um, aloneness, <clears throat> not belonging. Just it can be a whole range of powerful negative experiences yeah. in, in the in the lave, in the, in the heart, in the in the inwardness, that place where we're looking for their one thing that to to worship and count on so sometimes my thoughts they go right back to the garden and uh, thinking about the first time you get to hear a sinner talk there's just a lot that's instructive about Adam saying caught in the act I was afraid he says because I was naked so I hid and he's describing this uh, thing that's really sort of our common experience I've come to think so fear was new since Human beings rebelled against God and fractured that relationship and destroyed it. Fear was a new thing, and there's a whole new strategy going on, which is sort of Adam hiding in the bushes, literally saying, if God sees me now, he's going to certainly reject me, and that will be that will feel like death, and that will be death. So that dynamic of if anybody sees me or knew me as I am, they would certainly turn away in disgust and rejection is... What the calm scholar in me calls a social mask. So I, I have to put myself out there in the social realm, some kind of performance, some kind of, you know, posture. It ultimately is designed to do two things, either avoid rejection if I can, because that's death, feels like death, 
win, a much, win as much approval as I can. And so this is what puts the mask in place. And, I, you know, I've always thought with the kids I teach that you look out of that classroom and you know, you know some of them were more successful than others. Some of them found ways to do those very things quite well. They don't get a lot of rejection. They don't. They win plenty of approval. And other kids, just this was kind of the nature of their struggle. They didn't find the ways, and they've really been through the ringer socially, and and it really hurts, you know. Yeah. So, social mesh does that does that resonate with you? Yeah, I like that. It's like a defense against the vulnerability of whatever powerful thing that you're feeling. Right. And then to think of like the encouraging words, those powerful words that can maybe bring those things to the surface as we kind of talked about earlier. Exactly. Is the the interesting thing. Right. To I, see like powerful moments are always digging something up that was hidden, whether it's on purpose or in, intentional or accidental mm-hmm. or unintentional mm-hmm. or anything else. Sure. So, so- you know, to not, I suppose to not leave Adam and Eve cringing in the bushes, you know, <laughs> naked and pink and yeah, waiting, yeah. waiting for their, their rejection. I mean, how that unfolds is that God speaks the first gospel. And it's that kind of mysterious, vague thing, you know, um, I will put M.E.T. between you and the woman. So God is talking to the devil. The devil has just created a, a gap between God and his people he made in us. Yeah, yeah. And God is saying, no, 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 the enmity is going to be between you and me. So he's moving that. Yeah. And the subtext is, you know, I'm still on your side, Adam. I'm still on your side, Eve. And he makes that vague, but in hindsight, beautifully recognizable promise of, a, of his own son that will come, who yeah. will crush Satan's head and have his own heel crushed. So, so God responds, the, if, if boy, if God sees me now, I'm lost. And God speaks the first gospel to that ultimate fear, you know, because God is the ultimate one we're made to love and enjoy, and God speaks to the ultimate fear of being rejected by him and offers a savior and offers relationship and makes his, makes that costly promise. And so what we're going to want to say is that the gospel is always the ultimate encouragement. The gospel is the home run of encouragement, and every time we hear it, it is what is it, it, keeping us alive to God. Just as our baptism made us alive the first time God showed up in our lives and said, you're mine and you're my child and I've named you as mine. So I always think that's the ultimate. Yeah. Whatever facet of the gospel the person before us needs most. But I, I also think that there are also other layers that are just kindness, you know, mm-hmm. to tell a young student of mine that I see the pastor in him. To tell a female student who wants to be a teacher, not sure she can and just to just to say to her you've got more than you realize you well because that because that more. speaks directly to well, I mean if you perceive that they're hiding maybe or fearing that they're not that thing mm-hmm. that that you see that in them is, you know, is what that's what you're bringing forth exactly and affirming and it's not yeah. it's not psycho babble I mean we're not saying a person just feels unacceptable. So the person that says, boy, if anybody really saw me or knew me, this isn't just a feeling. It's This is a reality that sin brought, that mm-hmm. we all know ourselves to be not what we're supposed to be. There's a lot more going on in us than loving God and loving yeah. our neighbor. And it's not just, yeah, again. So yeah, it's not just a feeling. It's, not a, rea- the feeling. it's, it's like, a reality of the sinner to which God, and it's the source of all the hiding. 
speaks to your identity. Absolutely. Which is certainly evokes feelings, but mm-hmm. is much deeper than that. Yeah. Before we leave Adam and Eve, I mm-hmm. guess I've never looked at that section of scripture and kind of put myself in in their shoes. Mm-hmm. I've never read that and thought about myself hiding in the bushes, waiting, and then imagining yeah. the the power of the gospel in that moment while wearing or not wearing <laughs> whatever. So <laughs> right. that'll, right. that'll be, that's interesting to think about. So we're not using them. Al- yeah. We're not using them allegorically. Yeah. Adam and Eve were literally. Yes. The ones who first had the experience that has become the common experience of yes. knowing myself to be unacceptable and fearing the rejection that would come to any that would see me ultimately God himself. And that the gospel speaks to that and makes us come alive to mm-hmm. him. And this is how he sustains us by the sacraments too. Just continually saying, "Yeah, you're mine. Enough of all that. Don't be afraid. Mm-hmm. You're mine. You're mine. You're mine." Um, but I, you know, I, I I just have a curious thought about my own kind of childhood, whatever that angst was all about. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I've often thought if if somebody would have asked me, "What words are you hungry for? What do you what?" What do you, little Mark, want someone to say to you? Yeah, yeah. I think I could have told you. I might have gotten it wrong or I might have been shallow, but I think I could have told you what I wanted somebody to say to me. And and um, it's an interesting thought to me that saying it to myself, I think we do speak gospel to ourselves. We need to learn how to do that, how to um, appropriate the good news of Jesus. We all need to, and yet at the same time we really are designed to be relational. I think we really are designed to do it for each other. And the home run will always be my brother or my sister that looks me in the eye and says these things to me. Uh, and there's a whole range. So if we're if fear is a broad category, there's a whole range of things that can address those hidden vulnerabilities that people have. And yeah. I just think examples all day long of, of this is the quality words can have. Yeah. Remember, uh, that's interesting. I'm, no, I'm trying to. I'm just like reliving all of my childhood angst now, and and going <laughs> what through. And, you, John, it, yeah, John, right. You're, yeah, you're okay. A, but thinking about <clears throat> what if if you would have asked me that question when I was ten or eleven, twelve, what I would have mm-hmm. said is kind of interesting to think about because I I know I've grown a lot since then, right. not just height, but <laughs> well, you could, but also. You could, I mean, that being able to empathize with people was something that I did struggle with a lot. Mm-hmm. So, hmm. I, I but, but I like that question because you can go through your day-to-day life now and that brings forth a lot of opportunities where right. you can maybe serve other people right. and, and encourage them. So I a, think that way about the... Camp, the campus way, yeah. we're sitting right now, where there's a whole you know ocean of people, whatever seven hundred, who are committedly Christian enough that they want to serve God with their lives or think about serving Him as pastors, teachers, and stuff. And and so a person could think there's really no opportunity here to minister. You know, it, I'll minister someday when I'm out of here. Then I'll be out there asking questions. But I think if you just look in a different way at the people around you, even in a Christian environment. You find all kinds of people saying, someone, please talk to me. Someone, please say certain things to me. Yeah. And we could just be doing a lot more good for one, one another, I think, mm-hmm. with a little bit of understanding of 
you know, I always think that the list of things to learn to talk to people about is not inexhaustible. There's a, a list of that includes love and meaning. So I've got to belong to someone. Something I do has to matter. Identity. We come up with all the time. We mm-hmm. bring that up all the time. Who am I? And what is the identity that will not crush me because I don't do anything to create it? And, and the issue of control. I'm not in control of the things that matter the most to me. What does it do to me? The fact that I'm not in control of these things. Does it terrify me or does it set me free because of who is in control? So not an inexhaustible list of the things that are the high-impact messages we can yeah. create in the moment for people. So, you know, I, I tell students, this is not preaching, teaching. This is not prepared. This is the unscripted speaking of gospel in our day-to-day that uh, is a capability we all have to covet. I would just love to learn how to design words for people, you know, in the moment based on what I'm sensing. Yeah. You know, and you said before, yeah. before we got on the air, why don't you talk about this a little bit? You talked about how listening becomes then the key component here. Yeah. So when I was first learning how to communicate effectively, uh, listening felt like a passive a passive thing. It was like, so this is where I like take the back seat and wait for someone else to finish talking. And I hear what they say and I can respond to it. But but I think there was a big change when I realized that listening isn't in, in act. Sometimes the most active you will be in a conversation is when you're listening to someone else and truly engaging with them. I come back to so, that again and again yeah. in the class. Just what kind of attention are we paying to people? Yeah, we're undivided. Nothing mm-hmm. like all of the background noise, all of the interference that comes through is mitigated, and you're you're truly connecting with that person and and comprehending, right. understanding, and putting together what they're experiencing sure, and trying to trying to evoke. In you, yeah. So what are you doing with the extra brain time? You know, mm-hmm. you're asking questions like, "What is that like? What is that like to have just heard that from your mom? What is what does mm-hmm. this feel like?" And so, you know, we're trying to develop an instinct for understanding what that fear or shame or what might be, and then I want to know the gospel well enough that I can be searching it out in that moment and finding yeah. that facet, that element. Whether it's worth or identity, whatever it might be, you know. Exactly. And I think listening also applies to situations that maybe are more fleeting where you're not communicating with words, but you're kind of perceiving someone else's way of being right now. And that can be indicative of many different things, you know. Definitely. I was going to not feeling like it's a good day right now. Like someone's walking down the hallway and that's what you perceive. Maybe that's like. You can say, you can be encouraging in that moment. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's more so, it's not always that like clear as day, but. I was going to bring up my cross-country metaphor, but then I remembered that cross-country is a painful memory between you and I, John, because, <laughs> <laughs> you know where I'm going with this? So uh, I was, Perhaps. I, I was John, Ain't no thing, coach. I was John's coach in cross-country. That's kind of how we first became friends, and. The painful memory I have in mind is John was helping me run. You were helping me run the whole meet. <laughs> and I was driving the Oh, this one. Yeah, oh, was, this is good. Buckle I was up, guys. Driving the cart to lead the women's race through the trails of Flandro. 
might I, I add the narrow tra- trails of Flandreau. <laughs> and it was homecoming, so there were a bunch of former students around, and I turned this hair, I still remember the spot, turned this hairpin turn, and you're beside me in the cart. Mm-hmm. And I was taking you out to whatever, the two-mile, to call out splits at the two-mile. Yeah. So we're kind of rushing to get to that spot. And I turned around to wave to uh, the Borman twins who were standing at that hairpin. And, yeah. And what did I do, John? I <laughs> crashed. Crash Paustian I became because I crashed into a tree that jumped into the middle of the path. It did. It did kind of aggressively assert itself into the, it it into was the line we were on. And what happened to you, John? I was ejected from the vehicle. <laughs> so when I said buckle up, I meant it. Oh, but man. It was... Uh, I could have killed you. I'm laughing, but I could have killed you. And uh, it, it still is a, hurts to think about There was that. a cut on my knee, but I, I no, did like a flip we, we and I landed like... Superman or something on the ground. It was really... And you were sore for a while. I, yeah, I mean, next week. Not, yep, the whole next week. Could have killed you. <laughs> I think and the then, workouts and, were a little... Wor- but <laughs> Right, and, well, and we were only like, I don't know, 50 meters ahead of the women's race. So yeah, we were... Women coming. <laughs> I think that I remember, you and know, the there's cards. the rush of like something exciting and maybe bad and disruptive <laughs> is happening and it's not, everything's like a hubbub of what's happened. What should I do? Oh, and gosh. there's like a group of people comes over and Runners. like, we are like all lifting the cart and like right, pushing right, right. it off to the side. And I think I, I think I did take off and you hit did. the two mile spot. You did. The times were not accurate, but I was recording. <laughs> I think, I think you I got there and out. like, maybe I, maybe I like dropped the pen in the, Oh, in man. the commotion or something. But that was just the sinking feeling, having to walk back and tell people what I'd just done. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we got that out of the way. <laughs> the so I've often told the story. I was a I was a head case runner myself. I was a dedicated mm-hmm. runner and the biggest race I ever won was at St. John's Military Academy. Long story short, half mile to go, I'm leading the race tied with a guy from university school and as I always say, my chest is on fire. My legs are aching. That's all cross country is as a sport. How much mm-hmm. pain can you take? How much can you take? Yeah, yeah. That's what it is. And so you're just in total agony at that point with a half mile to go. And so saying to the kid beside me, I said to him, man, I feel great. Let's pick up the pace and finish together. Like we're going to hold hands or something. Mm-hmm. right?" <laughs> and and uh, what he did is what he was supposed to do, which was he just let me go. I took, I maybe sped up for about a step or two and he just, died in, just run, let it happen. in running lingo. He just let me go. And after the race, he he said, he came up to me and said, don't ever talk to me in a race again. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, what's happening is his chest is on fire, his legs are aching. And I convinced him that the person he's competing with is just feeling grand, you know? Yeah. And so the illustration is of words that sound really happy and sound really cheerful and uplifting having the opposite effect, having a really devastating effect. That's what that example kind of means. Yeah. Where the apostle says, consider how, because, you know, happy words may not be. Yeah. And the the corresponding example, I'll I'll just get this out, you can respond. Um, The apostle Paul, first missionary journey, does a little loop in Asia Minor, um, plants churches in Akona, Lystra, and Derby, and then he backtracks through those churches and the gospel writer Luke tells us that Paul encouraged the churches their same word, parakaleo, in Greek. And I assume that Luke is 
summarizing what it would, would have been hours of preaching. Paul would not have, you know, let the moment pass and not speak, uh, speak whatever he had to say. But Luke can summarize it all, and Paul encouraged the churches, and then and then it gives the summary of this preaching. So Paul encouraged the churches, saying to them, "We must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of heaven." And so there's an example of words that don't sound necessarily uplifting, but they still have a way of speaking to the fear. You know, if the fear is, if being a Christian means being happy all the time, that kind of a thing, being, yeah. you know, victorious in every way, if that's what it means, you would have to wonder, am I really in or not? You know, but if being a Christian means we must, through many hardships, enter the kingdom, which means imitating Christ in his humiliation, you know, it's, why is it so hard? Because it must be. It must be. We must learn that God will allow us to do his best things in the midst of defeat and despair and weakness and so on. And so it's encouraging because it says your Christian experience is exactly what you were given to expect. Have no fear. You are in. Mm-hmm. You're in the race, you know. And, yeah. And so I find that not happy, cheerful, but profoundly, profoundly encouraging. And so... It does take some thought, but yeah. the, the guiding thought is then, okay, what's the fear, and and how will I address it with God's truth? Mm-hmm. That's interesting because, well, just off the top of my head, this one of the few times where words are perceived as the opposite of what they are, and it's not sarcasm. It's not, um, uh, I guess that sarcasm might be like a superficial way of that happening, but for the opposite effect to be encouraging or demoralizing if you're a cross country runner, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. that's an interesting, yeah. interesting way. I hadn't thought about that. So it's like right out of speech act theory. There's yeah. a illocutionary act, which is what your words are doing. It's yeah. going to be very, very different from what they are saying. Yeah. You know, I mean, my example for that is often. A child saying she's sorry by sitting down next to mom and saying, "Mom, supper was really good tonight." Mm-hmm. You know, so the words are way different than uh, the meaning of the words is way different than what they are doing. Or the ex- other example is a couple who is bickering, and all she's trying to say is, "Why don't you like me anymore?" So she, what she's doing is trying to trying to win affection again, but it's very different than the words she's saying, and and so I think that goes to why it takes some thought. What words will be encouraging because the words are like the Hebrew concept. They're doing something at the same mm-hmm. time as they're conveying a certain meaning. Yeah. I'm trying to think of times in my life where uh, we um, would say something that seems discouraging or or uh, sad and it has the opposite encouraging effect. As, as Paul did with the churches. Hmm. I mean, most of the times that I can think of are related, very closely related to that, finding joy and suffering and, and whatnot. But, hmm. Hmm. Yeah, you know, describing that life is hard, describing that the Christian life is a anfechtung, is a struggle, naming, yeah. naming that reality doesn't sound happy. This is very similar to Paul's yeah, example. Yeah, maybe that's empathizing with someone who's going through a rough yeah, time. Yeah. You know. What you're saying is there's not yeah. something specially wrong with you. 
that you find that yeah. you're very sad right now. You, there's you can, not something. You can be in the pit with them. There's not some indictment on your faith right now that you mm. are grieving. And so, yeah, the words aren't happy, but they, they can still go to that spot inside where, yeah. boy, if anybody really knew where my heart was right now. So, you, I, you know, I always challenge students, so how does empathic listening, you didn't even say that much, but you were giving the kind of attention we talked about earlier. Yeah. And we'll have to have an episode on listening, too, and it really yeah. blew up that topic. But That'll be an interesting one to see yeah. who listens more. <laughs> be a quiet one. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so... <laughs> Well, I lost my thought. Um, oh, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> if uh, if a person is thinking, in the reality of my sinfulness, if anybody saw that or knew me, they would certainly turn away. That a certain kind of listening, all by itself, is saying, "I I see you, I see you, I hear you. I'm not turning away." Yeah. So the fundamental acceptance that we're offering each other day by day, that is just rooted in Christ, even in moments that isn't stated, can be just a true encouragement. You know. Just as it can be an encouragement to to uh, take delight in the way Jesus did, the way the apostles did, to take delight in the in the mm-hmm. in the love and the faith that people show, to to notice it and to take pleasure from it. I mean, that precedent is all over the scripture, and I think that would be encouraging because all I mm-hmm. see in myself is struggle. I don't really see much going on, but something that isn't really pretty, as I strive to follow Christ and fail every day. But someone else looking on sees something that they are taking edification from and they're taking heart from it. Yeah. I think that that's encouraging too. I think so. The things that I'm noticing, I don't know, maybe we should start wrapping it up here, okay. but I've noticed that um, ev- encouragement is almost always a relate like a relational activity. You can encourage yourself, I'm sure, but mm-hmm. all of the examples that we've talked about have been founded in, in a relationship where empathy is occurring. Mm-hmm, definitely. That I think is a, a core thing that's standing out to me. And then the other thing is that encouragement is speaking to a fear or anything under that umbrella. Those are the two things yeah. that are kind of sticking out to me right now. So, You know, I have, I have a lot of history doing this in the class and bringing up examples. One, one is always my dad when he was still living and had a stroke and was depending on my mom for everything. Just some things he said earlier, how he knew that that being retired and becoming older would bring some uselessness, some feelings of uselessness, just kind of remembering that and then seeing him go through that. So I always give the example of how would you encourage someone? Because one of the points I want to always make is we're not just trying to make people feel better. There's a, there's a much deeper agenda than that, which is to help them run their race, get back in the race, whatever yeah. that might mean, or finish the race in his case. Or the mom in church who gets bad looks because you can't handle her child and she mm-hmm. runs away. What do you say to her is the challenging thing. You know, the fear is bad yeah. mom. The fear is they're all seeing I'm a bad mom. So what are you going to say to that? And the examples that often come up are very indirect. Yeah. Um, how we let her know we see a mom who's doing a heroic thing and we just want her to have the strength to keep going. You know, or the child of divorce is the third example we always use. What are you going to say to that child whose family is falling apart? That so um, just to just to sort of communicate that there's a range of situations we confront on a daily basis that that can bring to mind what is a really powerful question, which is what is the fear this person is hiding inside, and and what can I bring? You know, that is that is true as some feature of the gospel or that at very least carries within it 
my own acceptance yeah and love of this for this person and you never you don't always find out yeah that you just said something that meant the world some days you do find out some days you won't even know you just kind of send words into the to into the dark the, space in the skull <laughs> right? not really knowing what they'll do in there but uh, yeah powerful question yeah absolutely I'm trying to like, so, are you, is that a rhetorical <laughs> question? What, what to say to those people? <laughs> Awkwardness is a key theme in our podcast as well. Oh, yeah. oh, I think we should finish up with some dessert then, huh? Okay. What think, you got in mind? Yeah. So, well, you were talking earlier about a book that you had read. Was it a book? Post, oh, yeah, Post yeah, Truth? Yeah. Is that what it's called? Post Truth. No, no, no. The, sorry. I said that, but that's not true. Oh. Ironically. The book is called Saving truth saving truth which is a title you can take a couple different ways which i like yeah so the oxford english dictionary's word of the year in 2016 was post-truth and kind of what it's talking about is we're coming to a day people think you know cultural observers think uh, a step beyond post-modernity which is post-truth and one example would be Whereas it, you used to meet the skeptic who says, show me the proof or the evidence I should take Christianity seriously, and there's tons of it. But in a post-truth culture, you'll meet the cynic who just doesn't care what the evidence is, just really doesn't care, will we'll simply cling to ideology. Um, and the more evidence you provide and the more reasons you provide, the more people will say, you're oppressing me with your facts. Yeah. You know, you're oppressing me. With yeah, yeah. And it's just cling to the narrative, cling to the crowd that will tell me what I already think. And and um, I just I just think that names something that I feel like I've been experiencing for a few years now, just listening to people. Yeah. So that's the post-truth concept. That's interesting that approaching the situation as you would with a skeptic, approaching a cynic the way you, you would approach a skeptic actually makes the situation worse because the more truth that you heap upon someone, the less effective it is. Whereas it, it, does, that so, would be the claim that yeah. can be what you can prepare yourself for. Yeah. So did, did they kind of address like, this is maybe a more effective approach for, I haven't actually finished the book, oh. so I'm dying to find out. <laughs> so far, it's just the so, observation so of some things called like motivated reasoning. So motivated hmm. reasoning is just kind of like the theory predicting bias, which is, yeah, I'm going to reason with you, but I know where I want to end up in the, in the end. And yeah. So it's, a, it's very intellectually dishonest. Hmm. And at the heart of it, what the author thinks is at the heart of it is uh, the word autonomy. So what we're saying is we're reaching a day when more and more people will say, forget the evidence. I don't care. No one is going to tell me how to live. No one, no one is going to tell me how to live. And that's, you know, I found the ideology I like and, and enough, you know? Hmm. And so sometimes I think, I don't know what the author will say, but sometimes I, I don't want to overthink all this stuff. Yeah. I, I thought about how, for you and I, John, there's there's only one case we can each look into in the in, in a way we can look in no other case, and that's our own case. In our own case, the Word of God remains powerful. The Word, the word of God broke through all of our resistance, in our case as babies, I would assume, but in holy baptism. But So it doesn't mean I'm going to find some other approach than to be a witness to the truth and yeah. try to 
try to get the Word of God into your mind. You know, it doesn't really. Yeah. Maybe the author will have some strategy, but for yeah, now, I but just. It's not all about tactics. Yeah. It's more about right. For now, I'm appreciating the diagnosis because it is kind of describing yeah. something that I think we've all kind of begun to experience. It's so, it's kind of a abrupt and abrasive when you come across that sort of cynicism in a conversation where you really, it's like there's a certain point where you, it hits you that this is not going to go anywhere. This is not, exactly. This is not a conversation that will have, there's, there's nothing that can come of this the way that's, that it's happening now. So, so, you know, the politics politics are so divisive. And you you can be armed with facts, like in the racial stuff going on. There's nothing harder in the black community than the absence of fathers. So there's a fact. You can find all the data in the world to say, compared to like microaggressions that maybe are like 50th on the list of problems, Yeah. number one on the list is what's happening to families. But it's like, I don't care about your facts. You know, that having evidence like that nowadays just doesn't seem to win people or like the, yeah. the transgender thing. If 80% of children are going to outgrow their dysphoria or their symptoms of dysphoria, if you just let them, let them be. But people, there are certain people driven by ideology, they really don't care about that. They're yeah. going to push the surgery. They're going to do these things to children that, that uh, to you and I are painful to think about. Yeah. So it's, it's this really frustrating point we're at in culture where you'd like to think doing the research and doing your homework and having the evidence and having the reasons all lined yeah. up would get you somewhere. But for some people... Yeah, that kind of approach assumes that the conversation will be met with, uh, you know, both people will come with a healthy skepticism of their own point exactly. of view where they'll exactly. be willing to be open yeah, exactly. to, to hearing That's and why listening I, to, to the other other party. That's why I'm, I'm anxious to read the book. I bought it because I was hearing the man being interviewed on the radio on a, one of my recent trips. Yeah. And he was claiming that he's able to move people past this in some way, to, to understand that living by preferences instead of an integrity, like you talked about, to, to, search, to search the actual truth of things, that he claims to find a way to help people break through simply living by preferences. And so I, I'm not... I'm not to the answer part of the book yet, yeah. but that's what makes me Well, I'm curious to see if, if the up. answer lies in some sort of indirect way of I wonder. being. So Yeah, I wonder. Mm. I wonder. Well we'll check back with that one next time. Yeah. Next time I make the trip. Do you have any dessert for us, John? Yeah, it's a uh, humor. Oh. <laughs> okay. No, I uh we were trying to think of something light hearted that we could talk about. Well, so we, humor we picked is the <laughs> light hearted maybe the most obvious one. <laughs> uh, I remember a while ago. Maybe it was back when we were doing cross country. We we had kind of been talking about the like a theory of humor. Like, why is this humor effective right now? Mm-hmm. And it was kind of fun to go through and see what other people had thought about that, <laughs> and and kind of like making academic <laughs> assumptions about hilarious. about like jokes is just the act of doing <laughs> that is. I'm laughing because I read a book by Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> called the keys to successful humor. As a young person, I yeah, thought this yeah. would make me a funny person. Right. <laughs> it, didn't, it just didn't. <laughs> I don't know if you can learn it from a book, to be honest. Yeah, but it, but it did talk about the theory of ambiguity as being kind of key to most yeah. humors. Things that are not ambiguity. What's the word I want? Um, incongruity. Yes. So, 
Yeah, that, that every every instance of humor is playing off some assumption or expectation and then violating it or yeah. mm-hmm. or that the incongruence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and then we, we were talking a little bit beforehand how that kind of like awkwardness is the form of that that's becoming more socially acceptable after a certain TV show. Yeah, I I told my students on Thursday that my theory is that awkwardness has become a phenomenon since The Office came out. And I actually told the students, and they were like, oh, I told them that on my honeymoon with Mrs. Paulson, we saw Steve Carell. It was on Second City Comedy Club in Chicago, so half our honeymoon was in Chicago. And we saw the Steve Carell on stage, and we just thought, he's going to be huge. He was nobody yeah, yeah, at yeah. the time, but he was—he just tore the place apart. Oh, that's neat, you know? yeah. But then saw so this TV show, which is all about how awkward can we make this moment right Yeah, now? and that's like the main characters are like this, yeah. whereas I feel oh. like beforehand, it's just awkwardness was like the sidekick person right. that like brings right. enough... like lightheartedness to this whatever I'm watching Correct. to make it PG or something, you know. But it's or just like, a series of painful moments and yeah. And they're all kind of defined by that. And yeah. So I don't know. What do you think about awkwardness? I, I have a funny theory that awkward people make me really comfortable. And it's yeah, a, it's a it's paradox. Like a, you thrive in that <laughs> no, environment. They're, they're easy to be with. Is that a know. personality type? I, I, it should be. The character I think of is C three PO. In Star Wars, okay. he's just always like, like he's the master of <laughs> communication, right. and he just like That's always right. never knows how to be appropriate in the situation that he's in. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, just like is just occurring to me now. That's brilliant. Like, I never I was, thought of that. I'm gonna. I will never view that character the same. <laughs> I've just always taken it for granted. But, oh man! So but, in my class, we try to my communication class, we try to embrace the awkwardness because yeah. there's, there's role plays and stuff. We just try to embrace it and realize. You know, if you love the gospel, there's a certain eloquence that comes from loving the gospel and the awkwardness, kind of like, so what? Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's another, there's another kind of awkwardness that comes about when you try to end podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 